The title of my paper today is taken, it begins from a, a line towards the beginning of Jane Austen's Persuasion, where she asks herself about Captain Wentworth, now how were his sentiments to be read? And so the, the topic is going to be on moral imagination and discernment in this novel. And I'll just start by saying that aside from the wonderful questions that our prompt gave us, this, even just the, the title of the conference raised a whole bunch of questions for me, and I'll just give you a few of them. So the first was just, what is the moral imagination? What other terms do we use for this sort of capacity? How might it be developed? How is it employed, and are there standards for its employment? How might a novel contribute to the moral imagination of a reader? Can a novel have a moral imagination of its own? And so on. So there's a lot of questions that came to my mind. And I wanted to narrow in for today on a small region in the terrain that's mapped out by all of those questions. And I want to ask, how might novels help to refine a reader's imagination, moral imagination, by making her more discerning of moral qualities? So I think novels can accomplish that, some of that work, such work, that's my claim for today. So what I'll do is try to argue for this by working through a test case using Jane Austen's persuasion. So I have some working definitions. I'm a philosopher, so I wanted to define some terms before I got started. Um, these are on your handout. I'll understand the moral imagination roughly as the capacity for discerning the motives and springs of human action and for conceiving of the range of possible motives for actions. That is, I'll understand it as a capacity for understanding basically what makes people tick. Even when, and maybe especially when, they're not explicit about or expressive of those motives. So understood in this way, the moral imagination will be employed in one's attempts to understand and assess the character and actions of others, to figure out why someone did what they did or what someone is like. So I'll understand the refinement of the moral imagination roughly as the increase of accuracy, sensitivity, and to use an 18th century term, delicacy of that capacity. So that's going to be both in the range of options that it's aware of and then also in the, the sort of precision of its application. So someone with a refined moral imagination would not, for example, sort all of the people they meet into a preset and small number of categories. So when I was thinking about this, Holden Caulfield's ever-expanding set of phonies came to mind. So not everyone is going to count as a phony or a not phony. You're going to have a range of options there. And someone with a refined moral imagination would look at an action or a set of behavior and ask what could be motivating it, what environmental and situational features might be involved, and so on. So I won't argue for this here today, but in my other work on the 18th century moral philosophy, I hold that this capacity to read for and discern the sentiments and motives of others is central to spectatorial moral theories like that of Adam Smith and to a slightly lesser extent, David Hume. So with those working definitions set out, what I want to show today is that Austen's persuasion dramatizes the workings of moral imagination and that this dramatization can affect the reader by refining her moral imagination. I'll focus on two central instances of moral imagination in the novel. I'll give you a little plot summary too, so if these people are unfamiliar, I'll say a little bit about who they are. So the first is Captain Wentworth's search for a wife who will, quote, combine a strong mind with sweetness of manner, end quote. Wentworth's search for, this for these particular qualities of character, and especially his search for strength of mind, provides the occasion for the reader to also search for these qualities and to examine these various characters and their claims to either have or lack them. The second instance is the scrutiny of Mr. Eliot's character and motives by several characters, but chiefly by Lady Russell and by Anne Eliot. So here, the reader watches as perceptive, cautious judges, especially Anne, try to determine the motives for Mr. Eliot's actions. 
and with them, the reader shares insights and maybe makes a few mistakes along the way. I'll discuss each of these instances of moral imagination in a separate section, and then in the third section, I'll return to this question of how a novel might help to refine a reader's moral imagination. Okay, so the first part is on Wentworth. As is announced by the title, the pervasive theme of this novel is the interpersonal relation of persuasion. Sometimes this is construed as a kind of interference with someone else, sometimes as advice or counsel. Characters repeatedly discuss how to persuade someone to do something. That could be something like breaking off an engagement, or it could be something like moving your household because you've been financially irresponsible. And they choose to ignore or listen to various characters as apt counselors. So it's a part of a sort of pervasive theme of conversation throughout the, throughout the novel itself. And the trait that faces persuasiveness in this novel is strength of mind. So this is sometimes construed as one's ability to resist persuasion, sometimes as a kind of general independence of mind, and sometimes as the ability to take counsel and then decide for oneself. The character of the strong-minded person will be a subject of discussion throughout the novel and will refine our understanding of this trait as I sort of go through some of the other characters' own attempts to understand it. But for now, I just want to note that there's a constellation of qualities that may or may not be part of the strong-minded character. And so some of these are terms exactly, like drawn exactly from the text, and some of them are sort of descriptions of things that are eventually folded into this, this trait. So some of these terms or qualities are resolution, determination, firmness, poise, fortitude, elasticity or flexibility of mind, propriety and correctness, and then calmness under pressure. So the question of Wentworth's search, I think, is both where are these qualities to be found and when are they virtuous? Okay, first some details of the, the plot and characters. So if you don't know this novel, this is the last novel that Austen wrote. Anne Elliot is our heroine in the novel. She's the daughter of a comically vain and vapid baronet. She's the, I think, the heroine with the highest social status out of any of the Austen novels. And she's also the oldest heroine. So she's 27 when we meet her. She's quite old. She's already experienced an unsuccessful love. She's not quite old. Eight years prior to the action of the novel, Anne was engaged to naval captain Frederick Wentworth. He was a young man at the time with no fortune, but he had bright prospects. The engagement was disapproved of by the people closest to Anne. And we are told that Anne, quote, was persuaded to believe the engagement a wrong thing. Indiscreet, improper, hardly capable of success, and not deserving it, end quote. Anne has remained single since this broken engagement. She leads a calm but somewhat melancholy life in her small society. She lives with her father, Sir Walter, and eldest sister, Elizabeth, but they both perennially undervalue her and basically treat her as a non-entity. She's loved by Lady Russell, who's their neighbor and Anne's good friend and basically surrogate mother for most of her life. Her mother died when she was young. And she's useful to her youngest sister, Mary, and Mary's large family acquired through marriage, the Musgroves. The novel takes some time to reveal to us what Anne's character is like, but we're told in the opening chapters that Anne possesses, quote, an elegance of mind and a sweetness of character, end quote. And as we continue reading, we learn that she is delicate but useful, sensitive but just, generous but self-aware. So the first volume of Persuasion is concerned with Anne's largely futile efforts to master her feelings for Captain Wentworth, long subdued but now fanned back into violent agitation. Wentworth went to sea after the broken engagement, but has now returned to the neighborhood. 
He has returned having earned his fortune, having survived the wars, having retained his good looks and his bachelor status, and, quote, ready to fall in love with all the speed which a clear head and quick taste could allow, end quote. Anne is no longer a candidate for his hand, for as we're told after their brief and incredibly awkward reintroduction, and this is the first passage in your handout, quote, he had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him, and worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which his own decided, confident temper could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion. It had been weakness and timidity, end quote. So Wentworth is ready to find a wife, but he will not look in Anne's direction as he searches, in spite of the fact that when he describes the woman he's looking for as having, quote, a strong mind with sweetness of manner, end quote, the narrator tells us, quote, Anne Elliot was not out of his thoughts, end quote. So he may once have thought of Anne as strong-minded, but her breaking of the engagement can be understood by him only as weakness, feebleness, and timidity. So just a quick note on the maybe the main moral question of this novel, which isn't really going to be the topic of my paper today, was Anne right to be persuaded to break the engagement? I'm not going to say anything about this after this, but my reading of this novel is that the novel itself treats, and this isn't, I'm not the only person to say this, but the novel treats the goodness or badness of Anne's decision as a matter of moral luck. So whether or not Anne was right in that initial decision to break the engagement depends entirely on a whole bunch of luck factors. So whether Wentworth returns from combat or is killed in combat, whether he returns with a fortune or not, whether he meets someone else, whether he changes in the war, whether she meets someone else, all of these sort of luck chancy factors are actually gonna be material to the decision or to the evaluation of the decision. So that's my little side point on that. I don't think the novel gives us a clear answer other than saying it isn't clear until we get all of these other factors. But back to Anne at the beginning, newly agitated by Wentworth's return and his still fresh resentment. So Anne has to watch after they get reintroduced, watch and feel, often acutely but rarely with expression, as Wentworth becomes entangled with these two young ladies, the Musgrove sisters, Louisa and Henrietta. Henrietta eventually renews her attachment to another man, and so the field is cleared for Louisa to provide the little beauty, few smiles, and few compliments to the Navy that Wentworth jokes are all he requires. But more seriously, in the scene that takes the small group on a walk, we eavesdrop with Anne, which is like a hedgerow eavesdropping, um, on the conversation between Wentworth and Louisa in the hedgerow. And we see that he has reason to believe that in Louisa, he has found a woman with strength of mind. So I gave you the long passage as passage two on your handout, and I'll read different parts of it. So when Anne finds herself near enough to overhear their conversation, she hears Louisa in the middle of an eager speech to Wentworth about how she convinced her sister to visit the young man that she gets reunited with. And Louisa proudly states, what? Would I be turned back from doing a thing that I had determined to do and that I knew to be right by the airs and interference of such a person, or of any person, may I say? No, I have no idea of being so easily persuaded. When I have made up my mind, I have made it." End quote. Wentworth applauds Louisa's unpersuadability, proof of which is offered, ironically, in her ability to persuade her sister. And then he muses about the value of traits like fortitude, resilience, and strength of mind. And this is a long little chunk here. It's one of my favorite passages, so I'm going to take the liberty to read it. Woe betide him and her, too, when it comes to things of consequence when they're placed in circumstances requiring fortitude and strength of mind, if she have not resolution enough to resist idle interference in such a trifle as this. Your sister is an amiable creature, but yours is a character of decision and firmness, I see. 
If you value her conduct or happiness, infuse as much of your own spirit into her as you can. But this, no doubt, you've always been doing. It is the worst evil of too yielding and indecisive a character that no influence over it can be depended on. You're never sure of a good impression being durable. Everybody may sway it. Let those who would be happy be firm. Here is a nut, said he, catching one down from an upper bough, to exemplify. A beautiful, glossy nut, which blessed with original strength, has outlived all the storms of autumn. Not a puncture, not a weak spot anywhere. This nut, he continued with playful solemnity, while so many of his brethren have fallen and been trodden underfoot, is still in possession of all the happiness that a hazelnut can be supposed capable of. Then returning to his former earnest tone, my first wish for all whom I'm interested in is that they should be firm. If Louisa Musgrove would be beautiful and happy in her November of life, she will cherish all her present powers of mind. As Anne hears this speech sitting there unknown to them, she hears it go unanswered by Louisa, and she sits there reacting to these words. She can't but interpret this speech as a condemnation of the traits he associates with Anne. Persuadability, lack of firmness, lack of strength, and a commendation of those he finds in Louisa. But as Claudia Johnson has noted, Wentworth's hazelnut is not just firm. It's impermeable, it's hard, it's resistant to any impression. Wentworth has learned to so hate the traits of persuadability, flexibility, and impressionability that he's come to value their opposites, fixity, rigidity, and obstinacy. He cannot imagine flexibility as a strength or rigidity as a weakness. So I think we learn from Wentworth's speech that he associates the valuable character trait of strength of mind with hardness and resolute firmness, the ability to withstand impressions and that he believes such firmness is essential to maintaining one's happiness through the storms of life. And yet we, if, as first-time readers, may agree with him, aligning strength of mind with traits like autonomy, authenticity, integrity, and finding them in characters like Wentworth and maybe also Louisa, we don't know her quite as well, but not in Anne. At this point in the novel, if you're a first-time reader, what you know about Anne is that she was persuaded to break an engagement, and she's in an almost constant state of emotional turmoil throughout the first volume. But the novel quickly casts doubt on Wentworth's understanding of strength of mind. So first, we see a subtle dart directed at Louisa. So an excursion to Lyme, which is a seaside resort town, is proposed. It's the autumn, so it's not a great time to go seaside visiting. But Louisa is the most adamant in favor of it, and the narrator tells us, quote, Louisa, who is the most eager of the eager, having formed the resolution to go, and besides the pleasure of doing as she like, liked, now being armed with the idea of merit in maintaining her own way, bore down on all the wishes of her father and mother for putting it off till summer, end quote. So Louisa is resolute, eager, and now she believes there's merit in maintaining her own way and becomes overbearing in her pursuit of that way. So with this barbed description, the reader may start to notice there's something wrong with the Wentworth-Louisa understanding of strength of mind. On their understanding, the person with strength of mind must frequently impose their will on other weak-minded, weak-willed people in order to get them to do as they should. So this sort of strength is necessarily divisive. It creates a group of those who have such resolution and a group of those who must be dominated by them. It is a character trait that can't be pervasively shared, for not everyone can have such firmness and resolution on pain of there being no one to dominate. And yet Wentworth advises Louisa to cultivate firmness in herself and in her sister, and he claims more generally that anyone who wishes to be happy should be firm. So not only is there something self-undermining in Wentworth's advising another person to be less susceptible to advice, 
There's something impossible in his general claim that all who wish to be happy should cultivate a trait that necessarily not all can have. So I guess it assumes that people in general want to be happy, but we don't have to go through it. Is there an exact contradiction here or not? I think there's just some things, there's a whiff of paradox around here. So the Wentworth-Louisa understanding of strength of mind is mistaken, and the trait they value is revealed to be more often a vice in the next important episode, the incident at Lyme. So this is a, a pretty famous incident. If you don't remember this, I'm sorry to you know, spoil fun plot events. Through obstinacy and resolution, Louisa gets her way and persuades her parents to arrange for a large group to travel to the seaside town. On their final day there, Louisa is determined that everyone should walk once more along the Cobb, which is a long, sort of rocky um, seawall. And she persuades everyone to do this. But her firmness, girded as it is by her belief in Wentworth's approval, leads not to her happiness, but to grave injury on her part and painful self-awareness on Wentworth's. And so this is passage three. So there was too much wind to make the high part of the new Cobb pleasant for the ladies. And they agreed to get down the step, steps to the lower, and all were contented to pass quietly and carefully down the steep flight, excepting Louisa. She must be jumped down by them by Captain Wentworth. In all their walks, he had to jump her from the stiles. The sensation was delightful to her. The hardness of the pavement for her feet made him less willing upon the present occasion. He did it, however. She was safely down, and instantly to show her enjoyment, ran up the steps to be jumped down again. He advised her against it, thought the jar too great, but no, he reasoned and talked in vain. She smiled and said, I am determined I will. He put out his hands. She was too precipitate by half a second. She fell on the pavement of, on the lower cob and was taken up lifeless. She's not dead, but she'll be okay. Takes a little while. Okay, this is the crisis point for the Wentworth-Louisa understanding of strength of mind. Louisa has well learned her lesson from Wentworth's speech, and she exerts her will in spite of his advice. Louisa acts in the way she believes is best, but in doing so, misses Wentworth's hands and falls to the ground. The mismatch between Louisa's will, too precipitate by half a second, and Wentworth's hands is telling. The problem with their understanding of strength of mind is that it impedes such moments where one would-be resolute individual must depend on another. Louisa is resolutely determined to be jumped down the stairs by Wentworth, not someone else, and she therefore requires him to act in a certain way in order to satisfy her resolution. But their wills clash to disastrous result. So we can reveal this, read the scene as revealing that the Wentworth-Louisa understanding of strength of mind depends on a failure to fully imagine social and moral necessities. Even the most resolute individuals depend on other people in various ways. And to try to act as though one can remain untouched, unencumbered, and unreceptive to those around one is impossible and can lead to disaster. Human beings are not hazelnuts. Just as Austin reveals that Wentworth and Louisa are mistaken about strength of mind, she also reveals that Anne, sweet, sensitive, impressionable Anne, is the one who actually possesses some of the qualities associated with this virtue. So Louisa's lying lifeless in Wentworth's arms, the various members of the group fall apart. Mary screams in horror, Charles is rendered immovable by Mary, his wife, Henrietta faints, Captain Benwick and Anne must initially support Henrietta, who has fainted, so now there's two ladies lying on the ground lifeless, but Anne soon springs into action, directing the movements of everyone else. She tries to revive Henrietta, she sends someone for a surgeon for Louisa, and then tries to suggest comfort to the others, she tries to quiet Mary, to animate Charles, to assuage the feelings of Captain Wentworth. Charles and Wentworth 
are the only two members of the group who retain some command over themselves, and they look to Anne for direction and advice. They adopt her sensible and quickly given suggestions, and Anne's strength of mind is revealed through her resolute actions under this moment of pressure. She has this ability to be commanding but also useful to others, and she acts with resolution just as she had acted with resolution earlier in the novel when her little nephew Charles falls and injures his collarbone, and she's the only person who's like, can we send for a doctor? Maybe that would be the best thing here. So she acts with this efficiency and sense, and she takes charge. And it's, I think, worth noting that two of the members of the party who are falling apart and not doing anything are naval captains who have been through combat, and they're like, ah, what do we do? And Anne's like, send for a surgeon and support that lady who fell down. So it's, it's a really striking, I think, tableau that you get to see when you get to also compare Anne's actions in this moment to everyone else's. So in case we haven't learned the lesson with Wentworth that willfulness and obstinacy are not the marks of strength of mind and that happiness is not secured by rigid firmness, Austin has Anne reflect on the episode and compare what happened to what Wentworth had advised in his speech to Louisa. So she thinks back to that speech as she's riding home and and reflects on the incident. This is passage four. So Anne wondered whether whether it ever occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinion as to the universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character, and whether it might not strike him that, like all other qualities of the mind, it should have its proportion and limits. She thought it could scarcely escape him to feel that a persuadable temper might sometimes be as much in favor of happiness as a very resolute character. So Anne construes the lesson as one about balance and proportion, the value of persuadability balanced with firmness. But we could also understand Wentworth's lesson as one about virtuous strength of mind, which manifests not in obstinate willfulness, but in capability and command, in sense and efficiency, and in the awareness of when one should be persuaded and when one should persuade. What we learn over the course of the first volume is that Anne has this latter sort of awareness. She's far from being always persuaded or always persuading. She often acts as a counselor to the little members of her her social group, but she's also receptive to them, open to their influence, and interested in their opinions and needs. Anne's strength of mind is founded on her sensitivity toward and care for the feelings of others. And because it's so founded, it's flexible, sometimes manifesting as a capacity to be directed, and sometimes as the capacity to direct. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to note that this sort of capacity of flexibility is also illuminated through another character that sort of shows up at the end of the novel and that we'll talk about in the next section, Mrs. Smith, who's an old school friend of Anne's, who is characterized, I gave this to you as passage five, and she's characterized as being, she's a woman in a horrible situation, but maintains her cheerfulness, and Anne, in her reflections on Mrs. Smith, realizes that the reason she maintains this cheerfulness is because of her elasticity of mind, which is the best gift, something different than resolution, and something that allows her to cope with the evils that are part of her life. So if you're interested, that's passage five, but I'll move on to the sort of last point on Wentworth's education in discerning strength of mind. So at the end of the novel, spoiler alert, after Anne and Wentworth have reconciled, Wentworth describes to Anne the lessons he learned at Lyme, and this is passage six. And I trimmed a little, I'm going to read only little parts of it. So Anne's character, he says to her, is now fixed on his mind as perfection itself, maintaining the loveliest medium of fortitude and gentleness. At Lyme, he had received lessons of more than one sort. There, he had learnt to distinguish between the steadiness of principle and the obstinacy of self-will, between the darings of heedlessness and the resolution of a collected mind. At Lyme, and through the comparison of Anne with Louisa, Wentworth finally learns to distinguish. 
And this clears the way for him to learn or rediscover the value of steadiness, resolution but with awareness of the needs of others, and the balance of fortitude with gentleness. So we can see Wentworth as being blocked maybe by a prejudice or a bias that he learns from his experience with Anne, but whether we see it as a block being removed or him finally seeing the value of a specific trait, I think what we can see is that he does learn this ability to distinguish. So as we'll examine further below, the effect of Wentworth's lessons is that as readers, I think we also learn to distinguish and our moral imaginations are thereby also refined. So about more on that in a little bit. Before we get there, there's another character I want to examine or another sort of piece of moral imagination that I want to examine, the character and motives of Mr. Eliot. So Mr. Eliot is introduced in the novel just as Wentworth is learning his lesson about firmness and strength, and he presents Anne with a character that she needs time to decipher. So when they first pass each other as strangers on the streets of Lyme, we learn he is a gentleman, an observation that gets underscored by a parenthetical remark, completely a gentleman in manner. And Anne finds him to have, quote, exceedingly good manners, an agreeable person, and an air of good sense, end quote. This stranger that Anne passes on the street is later discovered to be Mr. Elliot, a relative of the family, and Sir Walter, Anne's father's heir presumptive. So he's the one that will inherit their estate. He's unknown to Anne because he's been for some years been out of, seriously out of favor with the family, having snubbed their attempts to be better acquainted, and having also reportedly spoken very disrespectfully of them all. When we next meet Mr. Elliot, he's been reconciled with Sir Walter and Elizabeth and readmitted into the inner circle. And upon being properly introduced to him, Anne muses that, quote, his manners were so exactly what they ought to be, so polished, so easy, so particularly agreeable. And so I think Spencer's talk yesterday about manners is very relevant here to this, this problem with Mr. Elliot. He has wonderful, perfect manners. Anne continues to observe him, finding that, quote, there could be no doubt of his being a sensible man. Ten minutes were enough to certify that. His tone, his expressions, his choice of subject, his knowing where to stop, it was all the operation of a sensible, discerning mind, end quote. So Mr. Eliot is credited by the best-seeing and best-judging character in the novel with sense, discernment, and propriety. And admires his manners, his conversation, but his, she is suspicious of his motives. Why has he decided to reconcile with the family now? What was his character like during the years when the family was estranged from him? And after hearing various reports of how wonderful he is, his exceedingly good character, she still has, quote, the sensation of there being something more than immediately appeared in Mr. Elliot's wishing, after an interval of so many years, to be well-received by them, end quote. So she considers and dismisses a financial motive, um, then she considers and sticks with for a little while, maybe he wants to marry my sister Elizabeth, but she doesn't really ever find a motive that she feels satisfied with. And she holds on to these suspicions during her discussion of Mr. Elliot with Lady Russell, who I mentioned earlier is Anne's good friend. She's also described in the novel as being cool-headed, rational, well-judging. And despite Lady Russell's initial very strong impression of disfavor toward Mr. Elliot because of his earlier conduct, she's soon very quickly persuaded to think him the best of men. And so again, I'll read around from um, passage seven on your handout. Lady Russell was at first, as she told Anne, almost ready to exclaim, can this be Mr. Elliot? and could not seriously picture to herself a more agreeable or estimable man. Everything united in him, good understanding, correct opinions, knowledge of the world, and a warm heart. He judged for himself in everything essential, without defying public opinion in any point of worldly decorum. He was steady, observant, moderate, candid. When Anne suggests to Lady Russell that there's something suspicious or inconsistent in his sudden great desire of re reconciliation, 
something requiring, quote, more motives than appeared, end quote, Lady Russell's not interested. To her imagination, it's perfectly natural, she says this, that he should want to now reconcile and be on good terms with the head of his family. Lady Russell soon discerns a further motive for Mr. Elliot's conduct, his interest in apparently genuine affection for Anne, and she suggests he might want to marry you, and wouldn't it be great if you could step into the role of your mother, take over in Kellynch, and be, the pers- be Lady Elliot, as your mother was. Anne is a little convinced by this, but she says basically, it's nice, but as soon as she brings Mr. Elliot himself back to her thoughts, she's sort of disillusioned. So Anne and Lady Russell disagree on the finer points of Mr. Elliot's motives and sentiments. Lady Russell imagines only pleasing motives animating Mr. Elliot, familial respect, and genuine affection for a deserving woman, but Anne is not convinced of his character. Even though they've been acquainted for about a month, we learn that Anne remains cautious, for, quote, she could not be satisfied that she really knew his character, end quote. And she further thinks, quote, she would have been afraid to answer for his conduct, end quote. So she hasn't discerned a positive vice or flaw, but she finds Mr. Elliot to be too poised, too controlled, and too in command of himself in every situation. And this is passage eight. Mr. Elliot was rational, discreet, polished, but he was not open. There was never any burst of feeling, any warmth of indignation or delight at the good or evil of others. This to Anne was a decided imperfection. She felt she could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless or a hasty thing than of those whose presence of mind never varied, whose tongue never slipped. Mr. Elliot was too generally agreeable. Various as were the tempers in her father's house, he pleased them all. He endured too well, stood too well with everybody. So Mr. Elliot is being credited with qualities that are in a constellation, this constellation I mentioned before, of of qualities associated with strength of mind. He's rational, discreet, polished, he has poise and composure, he acts with propriety in relation to the various people around him. So without the suspicions we have through Anne, we could share Lady Russell's view and see Mr. Elliot as possessing impeccable manners and exemplary virtue. But we do have Anne's suspicions, and so there's something artificial and unnatural to us as well about his universal constancy and agreeableness. And so Anne's conversation, this is, we sort of remain suspicious, and then at some point, through like a delicate dance, Anne goes back to her old school friend, Mrs. Smith, and hears the full story. Um, Mrs. Smith knows Mr. Elliot, she has known him for a long time, and she knows the stuff Anne wants to know. And this is passage nine. It's one of the the most damning passages on character found in Austen's novels. So passage nine, Mr. Elliot, turns out, is a man without heart or conscience, a designing, wary, cold-blooded being who thinks only of himself, whom for his own interest or ease would be guilty of any cruelty or any treachery that could be perpetrated without risk of his general character. He has no feeling for others, Those whom he has been the chief cause of leading into ruin, he can neglect and desert without the smallest compunction. He is totally beyond the reach of any sentiment of justice or compassion. Oh, he is black at heart, hollow and black. Anne reacts with astonishment as the story is unfolded and the evidence is is given, and Mrs. Smith has a lot of actual hard evidence um, of his vicious character and of his true motives for returning to the Elliots. Lady Russell was right. He wanted to marry Anne, but Anne was right that there's another motive at play. Having come to care for the value of a title and estate, Mr. Elliot grew jealous of anyone who might try to take it from him. And the most obvious way for him to lose his inheritance was for Anne's father, Sir Walter, to remarry and have a son and heir with his new wife. Mr. Elliot learns that there's a lady in the picture that might be trying to angle to remarry Sir Walter, and so he comes back, seeks a reunion in order to keep an eye on everyone. 
So his attraction to Anne, Mrs. Smith says, quote, merely added another motive. Mrs. Smith's revelations are disturbing to Anne, but not surprising, and she responds in passage 10, quote, you tell me nothing which does not accord with what I have known or could imagine. I know those who would be shocked by such a representation of Mr. Elliot, who would have difficulty in believing it, but I've never been satisfied. I've always wanted some other motive for his conduct than appeared, end quote. She's made suspicious by the change in his interest in their family, and her suspicions led her to carefully scrutinize his character to try and discern his motives. And while she was not able to discern those hidden motives on her own, she did notice that there was something too completely perfect about his command and composure. And when she's finally able to recount this story of Mrs. Smith's narrative to Lady Russell, the novel again brings us to focus on the difficulties of discernment and judgment. And so Lady Russell, we're told this is very close to the end of the novel, passage 11, must learn to feel that she had been completely mistaken with regard to both Captain Wentworth and Mr. Elliot. That she had been unfairly, Lady Russell was one of the key movers in breaking the engagement with Anne, between Anne and Wentworth. So she had been unfairly influenced by appearances in each, that because Captain Wentworth's manners had not suited her own ideas, she had been too quick in suspecting them to indicate a character of dangerous impetuosity. And that because Mr. Elliot's manners had precisely pleased her in their propriety and correctness, their general politeness and suavity, she had been too quick in receiving them as the certain result of the most correct opinions and well-regulated mind. There was nothing less for Lady Russell to do than to admit that she had been pretty completely wrong and to take up a new set of opinions and of hopes. So the novel explains that although Lady Russell is a cautious and generally good judge, she went astray here, maybe again for a sort of reason of prejudice or bias, but also because she's not as skilled or gifted in certain capacities as Anne is. She's less, less gifted with this quickness of perception, a nicety in the discernment of character, and a natural penetration. She has prejudices, and these caused her to make mistakes. So in this and the previous section, I've tried to show through sort of close reading and careful analysis that persuasion is concerned with the portrayal of the workings of a moral imagination, where we can understand this as a capacity for discerning the motives of others and of matching their observable behavior and action to a range of possible motives. Three of the central characters in this novel, Captain Wentworth, Lady Russell, and Elliot, are engaged at various times in the attempt to understand the motives and character of some other characters in the novel. And the reader watches as two of them judge wrongly that they've found what they were looking for, a strong mind in Louisa Musgrove and a sterling character in Mr. Elliot. And we also watch as one judges rightly, not anything very particular, but something more like, gosh, human character and motives are complex, not so easily sorted, and often disguised from view. So I don't know if Anne's lessons sort of give us a concrete moral or something like that, but I think it's more a, a kind of a cautionary tale on how we can be too quick to judgment. So in the last section of the paper, I just want to explore a little bit further um, how this reading of the novel, or how reading this novel, can, might help, can help refine the reader's moral imagination. So this is my last section. don't have too much more to say. So much has been claimed about the moral importance of reading literature, and novels specifically, and I don't want to say anything so general here. But if I've made my case that persuasion is a novel concerned with the workings of moral imagination, I think it's worth asking whether and how reading about those workings can affect the reader's moral imagination. So often writing novels at a time when the effects of novel reading, dangerous or wholesome, were being widely discussed and, and debated. And in a famous passage in Northanger Abbey, you get something like the authorial voice breaking into the scene and claiming, quote, 
Novels are works in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humor are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language, end quote. So if we remember this, this passage from Northanger Abbey and we place persuasion in the context of that description, I think we can see the novel Persuasion as delineating a family of traits, some virtuous and some not, including strength, firmness, and elasticity of mind, composure and poise, resolution and obstinacy. To someone with an unrefined or otherwise flawed moral imagination, the obstinate person may appear to be like the person with strength of mind, or the person with urbane poise may appear superior to the person with elasticity of mind. That would be Mr. Elliot and Mrs. Smith, who are regularly compared by Anne's um, family, and it's like, why would you visit Mrs. Smith? She's the worst. Um, these traits are difficult to distinguish from one another, but in depicting the varieties of this family of traits and in depicting the processes of trying to discern and distinguish them, the novel engages the reader's sentiments and judgment, encouraging her to compare and assess different characters as they're compared and assessed by the characters in the novel. And what you might gain, the reader might gain from this activity, is a more refined awareness of the various shades of the resolute and strong character. Okay, so I want to just say a little bit about how exactly a novel might accomplish this other than just portraying. So one way would be to provide something like a catalog or a taxonomy of different traits, a field guide to human character. And if what we're aiming for is something like an increase in sensitivity and accuracy in discernment, it seems to make sense to present the amateur with a full range of possibilities, clearly, distinctly marked out and set side by side, as the various species of the North American sparrow might be set out in the pages of a field guide to North American birds. But such a method, at least for character traits, purchases thoroughness at the cost of effectiveness. And it may also draw characters that are overly stark, making the highly specified trait easily identifiable, but at the cost of the complexity that human character so often comes with. In addition to being only an imperfect way of refining a reader's immoral imagination, after all, a good bird watcher is not made from reading bird books alone, such a method would make for a fairly boring narrative. So Austin's methods are far more subtle, and they make for a much more compelling narrative. And two, I want to focus on, for which she is famous, our focalized narrative and free and direct discourse. And I just want to say briefly how this might work to do this refinement process. So just a quick primer, focalized narrative is, is a technique that positions the reader so that she shares the perspective of a specific character. In the case of persuasion, we're almost always in Anne's perspective, but we occasionally dip in and out of other perspectives as well. And then free and direct discourse, if you're not familiar, is a mode for rendering the speech or thought of a character in such a way that those overt tags that indicate speech are elided. So no quotation marks, no he said, she thought. This produces a seamless transition between the narrator and the character and then back again. So often these two techniques work together and they help the reader to inhabit a perspective other than her own. And in persuasion, this often means inhabiting the perspective of Anne, a keen, discerning, and sensitive mind in the processes of moral imagination. So I put some examples on your, on your uh, or one example on your handout, the last passage. Um, and I, I don't want to read through the whole thing. I want to note a few things about it. So this comes from a moment when they're walking home from the, the, the little walk when Anne overheard the speech in the hedgerow. Anne is getting tired. The Crofts show up with a carriage. They could take somebody home. Anne seems to be the best person for this, but she isn't going to volunteer herself. And then Wentworth manages to put her in the carriage. And she sits there after having been handed up by him long before the reconciliation and reflects on what happened. And so I just want to read sort of in, uh, at the second paragraph the yes, he had done it. So she's in the carriage and felt he had placed her there. 
that his will and his hands had done it, that she owed it to his perception of her fatigue and his resolution to give her rest. She was very much affected by the view of his disposition towards her, which all these things made apparent. This little circumstance seemed the completion of all that had gone before. She understood him. And then here we get into what has she understood? She, he could not forgive her, but he could not be unfeeling. Though condemning her for the past and considering it with high and unjust resentment, though perfectly careless of her and though becoming attached to another, still he could not see her suffer without the desire of giving her relief. It was a remainder of former sentiment. It was an impulse of pure, though unacknowledged, friendship. It was a proof of his own warm and amiable heart, which she could not contemplate without emotions so compounded of pleasure and pain that she knew not which prevailed." End quote. So it's a powerful scene, one that combines focalized narrative, our positioning in Anne's perspective, and even for a moment in her body as she's sort of lifted into the character, into the carriage, with free and direct discourse. And we see the free and direct discourse in the first little paragraph in the Croft's entreaties to Anne, and then in the second paragraph as we enter Anne's clear and vivid reactions to what has happened. Anne intricately reflects on what has happened and what it means, on what exactly Wentworth has done. He's bodily lifted her into a carriage. Then on his immediate reasons for doing so, he saw she was tired, he was resolved to give her rest. And then at that moment, when she thinks about the further deeper motives, we get this sort of long string of, he couldn't be unfeeling, they share a history, that history has left feelings in both, this very intricate analysis of what is in his heart. And because this scene is given from Anne's perspective and with her assessment of the situation, the reader's encouraged to agree, to see Wentworth's action as a kindness springing from accurate perception of Anne's feelings, motivated by this friendship that still remains. The novel, I don't think, some, some other readers have, have thought otherwise maybe, um, the novel, I don't think, gives us any reason to doubt Anne's understanding of this scene. Anne is hardly sanguine or self-deceived about Wentworth's treatment of her, and so when she reflects on his behavior and thinks it must be motivated by these pure impulses, the reader shares in that imagination of uh, her imagination of his motives. And I think a similar effect is produced in the second volume of the novel with the various interactions between Anne and Mr. Elliot. Encountering Mr. Elliot as we do through Anne's eyes and with her judgment, we're constantly questioning and inquiring into his true motives. And so I think it's interesting to compare just like sort of casually our, our sort of reaction to, to Austen's other earlier rakish characters who happen to be attractive, Willoughby and Wickham. Willoughby and Wickham, if, I'm not going to go into this, but we don't really get a chance to be suspicious of them. We love them with Marianne. We, we love Willoughby with, with Marianne. We love or are attracted to Wickham with Elizabeth and maybe some of the others. And the reader is, is allowed to fall for those guys. We're not allowed to fall for Mr. Elliot. Anne keeps Mr. Elliot at arm's length, and we do as well. There are corners of the internet devoted to Wickham and Willoughby, and as far as I can tell, no one is fighting for Mr. Elliot. And he's the only one not to seduce and abandon a young woman. So he is sort of, in comparison, not an awful guy in some ways, but for some reason, people are in love with Willoughby and Wickham, but not Mr. Elliot. And so I think what this might sort of reveal is that the effect of the distance that Anne keeps us at helps us to better discern a character that would be really quite hard to spot in the wild in real life. Um, if we were, maybe I'll just say myself, if I were to meet with a Mr. Elliot in real life, I would probably have some difficulty discerning that he's hiding something under this mask of impeccable manners, good conversation, and pleasant company. But Austin gives us the chance to observe Mr. Elliot's character through the eyes of an acutely perceptive and cautious judge. Anne. And this affords the reader, who may be hardly so perceptive or cautious, the chance to at least feel what it's like to practice this difficult kind of discernment. 
and gives herself time and, to deliberate and judge, and so we are given time to deliberate and judge. We benefit from what she discovers, and what we see is this kind of, uh, like if you, th- if you compare that lesson that Anne gives us with Wentworth, Wentworth is a kind of you know, amateur lesson, and Anne's lesson with Mr. Elliot is something more like a master class in discernment and evaluation. So just to conclude, I hope I've, I've, I've shown a little bit that I think Austin's use of focalized narrative and free and direct discourse make it easier for the reader to imagine, to discern, and to assess with another mind. And since in this novel, the other mind we spend the most time with is an exemplary judge with quickness of perception and nicety and discernment of character, we learn lessons just by being in Anne's company. Anne's moral imagination is already refined when we meet her, and she continues to examine, imagine, and reflect on the characters she meets and on her own experiences. And some of Anne's loveliest lessons in the novel are gleaned from her observations on the naval characters, their frankness, their friendliness, their warm-heartedness, who are a new kind of company to her. Spending time with such a mind is like being apprenticed under an expert in a craft, and hopefully our moral imaginations are refined at least a little in the process. Thank you.